for the past 13 years, you all have walked with Kristen and I through so many joys and sorrows. Um, and the whole time from behind this pulpit, I've been reminded over and over again the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not just from behind this pulpit, but in life with you and community. So thank you. And it really is an honor to have the opportunity to open up God's word with you today. So if you would, open up with me to the gospel of Luke. Um, in your pew Bibles, that should be on page 856. 856. And what we find when we come to the Gospel of Luke is an incredible example of investigative journalism. Luke tells us in verse 2 that he interviews eyewitnesses. And he finds out that from the people who were actually there, the people who heard what Jesus said, who saw what Jesus did. And he gets an account and he writes it down for us. And then there in chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us why he wrote the book. He says to us and anyone who would come across this, this book as it circulated, and to Theophilus, he says this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He writes this to us so that we could have surety, so that we can have certainty considering, considering the things that we've been taught. And what is it that Theophilus and the others had been taught, believers? They'd been taught that Jesus Christ really was who he said he was. That Jesus Christ really was the Son of God and the Son of Man. And that term, the Son of Man, was actually Jesus' favorite term for himself. When talking about himself, he called himself the Son of Man. And that refers, yes, to his humanity, that he was fully man while being fully God. But it also refers back to the book of Daniel, that ever since the time of Daniel, people, the people of God have been waiting for their Messiah. They've been waiting for that chosen one to come and stand as a go-between between God and man to rescue us. And so in the opening chapters of Luke, we see reactions to Jesus. As people hear that the Savior is here, that this Messiah is here, we have Zechariah and, and Mary burst into song at the news. We see Elizabeth shout for joy at the news. And we see John the Baptist in her womb actually leap, kick in the womb, just being around his Savior who is coming. We have um, his birth narratives. We're familiar with those, the Christmas stories. And then we have Jesus um, being um, commissioned or... Uh, his time in the temple when he was a young baby. But then we only have one account of his childhood or his adolescence. We only have one story, and that's going to be our text today. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're actually going to start in verse 40. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40. But before we read it, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these people have not gathered to hear from me. They've gathered to hear from you. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak by your word through your spirit in our hearts. May the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we are a church that is growing, and we are a church that, because we're growing, experience growing pains. We recognize our humanity and how weak we often are. So, Lord, thank you for your encouraging word that you bring to us today right here. Be with us even now. We love you and it's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. It's a familiar story, isn't it? A family vacation that went horribly wrong when we left one of the kids behind. Now, besides being something that may have actually happened to you, it's kind of seared into our memories by a movie that came out in 1990 by the name of Home Alone. If you're unfamiliar, Home Alone is a story, yeah, I know, right? The, the Home Alone is a story of the McAllister family, and the premise is this. They go on an overseas Christmas vacation with the entire extended family. That sounds like a bad idea to me. And if that's not out, outrageous enough, they leave Kevin asleep upstairs. And so Kevin wakes up, he has the house to himself. What's he going to do? Because of weather and communication issues, they can't get in touch with him. And we see what Kevin does, right? You remember it vividly. He pops popcorn and he jumps on his parents' bed. He eats unhealthy amounts of ice cream. And he watches movies about organized crime that are completely inappropriate for his age. So we see this boy, this young man, he's in isolation. He's all by himself. He has no accountability and no responsibility. And he uses his freedom as an opportunity to indulge the desires of his heart. Doesn't he? He uses his freedom to do what he wants. I think some, one of the toughest questions we can ask ourselves is, who am I when I'm all by myself? Because that reveals who we really are and our desires. But what I want to share with you today is that I really don't think our text is very different than that. What we find is a young man, all by himself, who uses his freedom to indulge the desires of his heart. Jesus does exactly what he wants when he's all by himself. But as you can imagine, the result is much, much different. Luke 2, 40 through 52 is about Jesus' growth. So this on our Children and Youth Sunday, it's amazing to see that this is all we have in regards to what it means that Jesus grew. But my hope for you today is that you would grow in Christ knowing that your Savior himself grew. That you would grow in Christ knowing that your Savior grew. And there are really just two things that I want to talk about today. That you can grow in Christ because your Savior grew humanly, you can grow in Christ because your Savior grew heavenly. And the trajectory of Jesus' growth and how our Savior grew has everything to do with how we grow in Him. So look with me at the passage. And if you have your Bible or your phone, the way it actually looks on the page is going to show us a lot. So I'd encourage you to take a look at it with me. Look up at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, jump down to the bottom to 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke is not just being um, redundant here. He's not just unnecessarily saying the same thing twice. These headings that you have in your Bible were added later. But in Luke's language, this is a way of drawing attention to the center of the passage and saying this is what the passage is all about. So by bookending it or framing it, he shows us that this passage is about Jesus' growth in stature and wisdom and in grace. 
Like a picture frame highlights the center, right? A good picture frame brings out the beauty of what you're supposed to be looking at. And this way, this is what this frame is doing for us in this passage. And it shows us that it's about Jesus growing. I want us to be comforted by Jesus' humanity and challenged by the trajectory of Jesus' heavenly growth today. Look with me down in verse 40 again. We're going to keep coming back to these, these, two passage, these two verses on either side. The child grew and became strong, and then bounced down to 52, and he increased in stature. Now this word stature, it really just refers to height and years. This is saying Jesus' body got bigger, and he grew older. Now before you stop me and say, thanks, Captain Obvious, that really helps. <laughs> the fact that Jesus had a physical body is a big deal for us. That Jesus had, Jesus had a physical body that grew. We have to pause and look at this word stature and realize that what is contained in this little word is the greatest miracle in all of the Bible. That the God who created the universe became a human being and never ceased to be God. There are all kinds of amazing miracles in the Bible, but this is the greatest, that God would come and become a man for us. You see, God didn't just come as a full-grown man, like he sent the angels all throughout the Bible. He didn't just appear, and he didn't just look like a man, but he really was a man. The God of the universe chose to become a baby, be born into this world, and experience all the growing pains and temptations that we experience. Now, if you're thinking here, well, where else do we see this? I mean, you're getting a lot here from one little word, but other parts of Scripture confirm and illustrate this for us, right? Remember in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus willingly limited himself by becoming a human being. And then the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is man. 100% both at the same time. And so you may be thinking, okay, land the plane a little bit here, Zach. You're at 30,000 feet. This sounds like a great idea, but what difference does it actually make? I want you to consider with me that the God of the universe chose to be born, and then he experienced potty training. Or better yet, Mary and Joseph experienced potty training. <laughs> that he experienced the gro growing pains of growing up as a real human being. He's 12 years old in this passage. If he had not already, he was soon about to hit puberty and go through it for us. He experienced everything that we experience with us and for us. And so the fact that Jesus had a human body is not an unimportant detail for us in God's word. It is a big deal. If Jesus had a human body, then he also had a human brain. And if Jesus had a human brain, he also had human feelings, thoughts, and emotions. And we see this, don't we? When Jesus comes into his father's house and sees it being disgraced, what is, what, how does he respond? He grows angry without sinning. When he's standing at the tomb of one of his best friends, what does Jesus do? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. When Jesus would speak in public, he would be exhausted afterwards and he'd take a break. That's what I'm going to do this afternoon. And Thank you, Annabelle. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? 
anticipating being separated from his father for even three days, he was anguishing. He prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus entered our world, not just with a physical body, but he took all of it. Jesus, his brain had a limbic system. He felt what we felt. He feels what we feel. He thinks how we thought and went through life, how we go through life. As you experience the growing pains and temptations of this life, remember, as John Calvin said it, that Christ put on our feelings along with our flesh. Christ put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus gets it because he's been there personally and painfully, walked in our shoes. He knows what it's like. You see, we have a tendency to distance ourselves from Jesus. When we see him in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, we say, well, yeah, of course he didn't cave to temptation. He's God. What I'm telling you here today is that, yes, that is true, but he was a man tempted as every way that we are and yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like. He gets it. And when Jesus encountered people who had sinned, who had made horrible decisions in their sin and hurt themselves, how did he respond? With compassion and patience. When Jesus came across people who had been sinned against, how did he respond? With compassion and patience. And when Jesus came across people who had simply been affected by living in a broken world, how did he respond? With compassion and patience. Brothers and sisters, as we grow in this world, would you show yourself compassion and patience as you grow, knowing that you are a limited human being? Would you show compassion to one another as we all grow towards the image of our Savior? Patience with one another. Jesus gets it. He knows what it's like to have this physical body. He willingly took it on and limited himself for us. So Jesus grew in stature, but Christ grew humanly in another way. He grew in wisdom. And we see that in verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. But we see it illustrated for us actually in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus is learning here. Jesus is learning God's word. He's listening and asking questions. And yes, they're amazed at his answers, but he's learning. He's asking not rhetorical questions. He's picking things up. You see, at 12 years old, Jesus was beginning to develop abstract thinking skills. Now, we know that abstract thinking skills don't really kick in between the ages until the ages of like 11 to 17. And before that, young kids think in very concrete terms, don't they? Think very literally. This summer, we had a um, Bible club outreach during our mission to Broadmoor. And Cyril, one of our interns here, and he works over at Jackson State. You guys know Cyril. He was teaching an excellent lesson on Revelation 3, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he asked the questions, how do, if Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts, how do we open the door of our hearts? And the answer he was looking for was by believing in him, by faith. But the answer he got was, okay, how do we open the door of our hearts? With our lungs. <laughs> Why? Put yourself in the mind of a young child. Here's my heart. It's the closest thing to my heart, my lungs. So I'm going to gain access to my heart. It's going to have to be through my lungs, right? That's that's concrete thinking, right? But here at Jesus, Jesus is 12 years old. He's, he's beginning to gain the skills of being able to 
connect abstract ideas, concepts, and metaphors. And this is a rigorous education that he went through to learn God's Word. He knew it. But now he's at an age where it's starting to really kick in. He's really listening and asking questions, and he's able to connect the dots. It might make us uncomfortable, but we do have to consider the fact that there were things that Jesus did not know. Remember, Paul tells us that he willingly limited himself. There were things that Jesus didn't know. Think about what Jesus says in Mark 13. Concerning that day, that means the day that he was going to come back, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. And that's coming from the mouth of Jesus himself as an adult. He's saying, I do not know when that day is. The God of the universe in human form was learning. He was listening and asking questions. This is a great mystery, you guys. I can't pretend in this sermon to exhaust the richness of it, that God became man. This beautiful tension between Hebrews chapter 2, where we learn that he was like his brothers in every respect, and Colossians chapter 2, where we learn that in him the fullness of God dwelled bodily. At that, we put our hands over our mouth and we say, wow, God, how did you do that? Thank you for doing that. Perfectly uniting, uniting yourself to a man to raise us with you. And I want you to think about Jesus' childhood education and when he was young, reading God's word for the first time. Imagine what it was like for him when he read the passage that was our call to worship or our Old Testament scripture reading last week, Isaiah 53. And he comes across the words, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus, as a young man saying, this is about me. This is about me. And he confirms this in Luke chapter 4, just a little while later in his public ministry. He reads another passage from Isaiah. And what does he do? He folds up the scroll and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He knew it. He learned it. Jesus grew in wisdom. Redeemer, if Jesus himself read and studied the Bible... I kind of shudder at the thought, how can I be so quick to move past it? If Jesus studied the Bible, how can we be so quick to move past it? If you're like me, you struggle with familiarity. I don't understand people who can go to the movies, pay an exorbitant amount of money to see that movie, and then go back a few days later and watch the same movie. You already know what's going to happen. I do the same thing with books. I, feel, I don't feel productive if I read a book and then go back and read it again. That's a character flaw I know. But this idea of familiarity, that like, okay, we got that. The thing is, we don't got it. It reveals in me a mis fundamental misunderstanding of what God's Word actually is. You see, for me, God's Word and what it tells itself, the Word tells us this. The Word is not just facts and theologies for us to say, yes, I agree with that. The Word is not simply helpful advice for us to turn to. When we need it, it contains that, but it's so much more than that. And God's Word is not just simply a story for us to be familiar with. God's Word is the living, active, personal communication of a loving Father with His children. And so Jesus, when He's listening and asking questions of God's Word here, He is being a devoted Son who loves His Father. And His Father is speaking to Him. And we see it all through His life in his prayer life, and the way he relies on his, God's word that's been given to him too. 
I learned this lesson the hard way that God, our, we serve a God who listens and asks questions, who has always spoken to us and will always speak and listen. I learned this the hard way in our children's church ministry that happens during the 8 o'clock service. So we realize as kids come out of um, nursery, it's hard for them to sit through a long sermon, just developmentally. And so what we provide is for four and five-year-olds, they go upstairs and then we sing, we have an age-appropriate lesson, we have some active learning, and then we have prayer time. And let me tell you, the prayer time at Children's Church is the most entertaining time <laughs> of Redeemer's life. I had a kid nonchalantly raise his hand, what do you want to pray for? We'll pray for whatever they want to pray for. Raise his hand and say, my little brother has leprosy. <laughs> it was not true at all. I don't know where he got it from. I find out that people are expecting long before anybody is supposed to know. And the, and the other volunteers who are helping with Children's Church. But what happens more often than not is kids will raise their hand and say, can we pray for my dog? Like, okay, let's pray for the dog. So we stop. I give the, they can pray or I can pray. I always give them the, the opportunity. And a lot of times they'll ask me, so I'll pray for, pray for their dog. Next kid, hand goes up. Can you pray for my cat? I said, I'll stop and pray for the cat. And it just keeps going and going and going. By the end of it, we're praying for cats and dogs that have been dead for like three years. <laughs> and so in that moment, there's this part of me that just wants to say, stop, enough, no more pet prayers. We're done with this, right? But then I realize, what must my prayers sound like to my Heavenly Father? Do I really know what to pray for as I ought? Or does the Holy Spirit intercede for me with groanings that are too deep for words? My Heavenly Father is such a better listener than I could ever be. He hears us. He hears us. It's beautiful to see Jesus here growing in wisdom, imitating His Heavenly Father, being just like Him by listening and asking questions. So Christ grew humanly, but He also grew heavenly. He grew towards His Heavenly Father. That was His goal. And look with me once again at verses 40 and 52. And the favor of God was upon him in 40, and he grew in favor with God and man down in 52. That word favor is translated all throughout the rest of the New Testament as grace. That's the same word that we have for grace. So Jesus is growing in grace. How in the world can the perfect Son of God grow in grace? It doesn't make any sense. He was perfect. The only way that Jesus could have grown in grace was by his perfect obedience. By his perfect obedience to the covenant that he had made with the Father to come and rescue us. Look with me at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Notice that subtle shift. What does Mary say? Your father and I were looking. But what does Jesus say? I must be in my father's house. This is no slight or disrespect to his adoptive father, Joseph. That is not what this is. What this is is the first of many crystal clear yet deathly unpopular claims that Jesus made about who he really was, about who he claimed to be. Jesus is saying that he's the son of God. And think about the ramifications of this. We see it in John chapter 10. Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. Very next verse. And they picked up stones to stone him. This was a costly thing to say. These same religious leaders who were astonished at his answers did not like to hear what Jesus was claiming to be. That he really was the Son of God. 
But it all hinges here on verse 49. Look at it with me again. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, it's important for us to know the word house actually doesn't appear here. And your Bible should have a footnote that will point you down to the bottom and let you know. Um, this could also be said, I must be about my father's business. The sense of what Jesus is saying here is, I have to be about what my father is about. I have to do what my father does. Jesus is personally and passionately committed to the work of his heavenly father. That is what he is concerned about. And it matches up with what he said later in John 9, when he says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus is the son of God, perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. In the most iconic scene of Home Alone, um, Kevin is sitting, standing looking in the mirror, right? And he puts on the shaving cream and he shaves and he gets the aftershave and he slaps it on his face and he screams. And that's what's on all of our movie posters. But I'll just back up for a second and think about what's going on there. Whose mirror is he looking into? Whose aftershave is he wasting? You see, when he's all by himself, Kevin imitates his father. And Jesus does the exact same thing. He imitates his heavenly father. In isolation, he goes about his father's business. And what was his father's business? What was Jesus meant on, he, on this earth to do? What, what, what was his father's business? Redeemer, his father's business was to lose his only son to gain you and me as sons and daughters. That was the father's business. That's what God the Father was up to. And that's what Jesus was committed to doing. That's what he was committed to doing. It was the only way that we could be united with him. He united himself to humanity, became just like us, so that when his body was broken and it was raised again, that he could raise us with, raise us with him, if we are found in him by faith. But you see, the tension, there's still tension here, even after he makes this claim. Look with me at verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Angels had appeared to Mary and Joseph and told them who Jesus was going to be. But yet they didn't understand. These very religious leaders who he was speaking to and were amazed by him would not understand what he came to do. The crowds that would flock around him, they wouldn't understand. They were looking for another kind of Messiah. They wanted a king. Jesus was coming to be a servant. You see, Jesus was not motivated by what his family expected. Jesus was not motivated by what the culture around him expected. Jesus was not motivated by his loving crowds who cheered him on, his followers. Jesus was motivated by going about his father's business. His father's business was his main concern. You see, Jesus, the perfect God-man, stood in the gap between God and humanity, and he was ripped apart because of it. He was ripped apart because of it as the perfect God-man. Jesus knows humanity because he's been there. He knows humanity and loves humanity that he was not content to leave you in your sin, but came to take that onto himself, crucify it on the cross, and raise you to new life if you believe in him. He loved us enough not to leave us in our sin. Hear me when I say this. We may be weak. We may be limited as human beings. But we were never meant to be sinful. 
We may be weak, but we were never meant to be sinful. Jesus loved us too much to allow us to continue in that. But he made a way out. So for us, obedience, which is a word we kind of recoil against that word. Obedience for us then is not a burden, but it's freedom to be who we were meant to be. Jesus provides for us what what, what it truly means to be human. Jesus provides that for us and provides it for us at the same time. Obedience for us is not a burden, but it's freedom to grow, to look more and more like our Savior, to be conformed more and more into the image of the one who loved us enough to do this, to take it all on for us. And so where is Jesus now? Jesus was raised, and even right now, he is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for me and you, praying for me and you. Why? Because he knows what it's like. He experienced those same temptations. Jesus gets it. And so what do I ask of you today? Don't distance yourself from your Savior. Don't distance yourself from your Savior. But know by the work of the Holy Spirit, through His Word, and in the context of this community, He can and will transform us. Make us new. Allow us to walk in the way in which He walked. And stay with us by the Holy Spirit the entire way. So in your pain, and in the growing pains of life that your family may be experiencing or you may be experiencing, the transitions that you may be experiencing. I want you to take comfort in the fact that you are human. Right? Take comfort in the fact that you are human and Jesus knows what it's like. But in your sin and your unbelief, if you do not know Jesus today and you are walking in darkness, I want to challenge you. You are human, but Jesus was too. And His body was broken to raise you to new life. I want to invite you to that today. Our Savior grew humanly and He grew heavenly. And His growth sets the trajectory for our growth. We can grow in Christ, Redeemer. We can grow towards our loving Savior and become more and more like Him. And in that way, we go about our Father's business. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need Your help. Thank You so much for sending Jesus to rescue us. Thank you, Lord, that he is with us through everything and knows what it's like, Lord. Revive us again. Be with us in our growing pains and our temptations. Lord, thank you that you have conquered and you will continue to conquer. Thank you for these people, for the blessing that they are to me and my family. And I pray, Lord, that your word has been and will continue to be a blessing to them throughout this week. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.